0: The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. The word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. Blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. We are here this morning studying the word of God and we are doing a topical study right now. We're studying on witnessing. We've made good progress through the study and uh, we're actually looking at some things now On what we do for discipling new believers. Somebody who's come to faith in Jesus Christ. What do we do then? Because the Great Commission is all about making disciples. Not just simply leading people to faith in Jesus Christ. That's an important part of it. But making disciples. And that means a true follower. A true student of Christ. And we'll talk about that. By the way, as I mentioned, when we were singing the hymns, I've already begun my work on my study going through A Mighty Fortress is Our God. So when we finish our study on, the wit- uh, study on witnessing, we're going to go in and we're going to take a look at line by line through A Mighty Fortress Is Our God and all the doctrine that's in that incredible hymn. And then when we finish that up, I'm going to do a brief uh, review of eschatology just to kind of bring people back up to speed uh, on the the end times and what is written about in our scriptures regarding the end times. And sometimes I think we, uh, as we read the daily news or uh, listen to... Uh, broadcasts on different things and whatnot. We can we can really become uh, obsessed with the idea that we're we're rapidly approaching the end times. It seems like it, doesn't it? And so uh, it's good to have an idea of what is talked about in the scriptures. And then of course when we complete that, uh, we're going to then pick up on our new study. Rather than Second Timothy, which was my original plan, uh, we are going to pick up on our study of the life of Christ. That is going to be our follow-up study after we complete all these various topical studies, we're going to get into that. Well, before we dive in to our study on witnessing, let's take a moment for silent prayer. We do need to ensure that we are properly prepared for the study of the Word of God. This entails confession of sin, if necessary, so that we might be filled with the Spirit and under His ministry, but it also gives us a chance to humble ourselves, make sure that we're properly humble so that we're teachable, and It gives us the opportunity to focus our attention on what it is we're going to be learning this morning. Shall we pray? Most gracious and merciful and loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for blessing us with this opportunity to gather here at the church this morning, the fellowship that we have one with another, the opportunity to sing hymns <clears throat> that speak about you and the joy that we have in our souls. And Father, we thank you that even though, even though we are listening eagerly, anticipating and listening for the sound of the trumpet as you call us all home, Father, we are thankful for each and every opportunity we have to gather like this. You have provided everything in your grace. Uh, Our physical health that allows us to be here, the building, uh, the electricity which allows the lights to work and the amplifiers and everything else to work. That's all provided by your grace and help us to never take this for granted. As we learned in 2011 with the fire, it's not an automatic. We can't necessarily count on the fact that we're going to be able to come here and, and gather together on a Sunday morning. It's been provided by your grace And help us to have the proper gratitude for what you've given us this morning. To take full advantage of this opportunity to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We pray all of these things in his most precious and beautiful name. Amen. Well, we made our way through a number of topics. I'm going to skip past this. Here we go. Discipling New Believers is is what we're working on now. And uh, one of the things that we talked about I'm going to really briefly review all of this one of the things that we talk about is helping new believers understand uh, that they can be assured of their salvation. And <clears throat> basically, we talked about how going through the John 5:24 and giving them assurance that they are saved, they are indeed saved, <clears throat> that what they've done in placing their faith <clears throat> excuse me, what they've done in placing their faith in Jesus Christ is all that is needed in order for them to be saved and have eternal life. They need to understand this. And so it's very important to give them an assurance of their salvation as, as uh, their brand new believer. Now, this might be a believer, by the way, that you have been a fellow worker with God in leading them to Christ. Or it could be somebody that you just meet, that you discover that somebody's is a, a, a brand new believer. They just got saved recently and you'll have an opportunity to talk to them about these things. Uh, You can also uh, not only go beyond the assurance of salvation, but really what this talks about here is uh, knowing that you're saved, right? That's one thing is knowing that you're saved and also security of salvation, right? You can't be snatched away and you certainly not be cast out. So not only can they know that they have eternal life. And this is, by the way, this is one of those things that there are groups out there. I'm just going to leave it that way. There are groups out there that are on both sides of the Arminian Calvinism expanse that will take away this. They will tell you you can't really know, right? So the Calvinists will say, for example, that you can't know if you're one of the chosen. And so if you don't know whether or not you're one of the chosen, uh, then you don't really know if you're saved. It may seem like you're saved, but if you're not chosen, then you're not really saved. Well, that's not what the Bible tells us. 1 John 5.13 says that we may know. We may know that we're saved. We may know that we have eternal life on the Arminian side. They'll tell you you can't know because, well, maybe you were saved, but now you've lost it. Right. So that's the whole thing. So either way, on either end of that spectrum, you will have the the concern about, you know, I'm not sure. Am I going to go to heaven? I want you to know the Bible wants you to know God wants you to know that you have salvation. You have eternal life and if you look at John 10 and John 6 and those verses, there's others, by the way, you can have confidence that it can't be snatched away. It's not going to go anywhere. You are saved and you're not going to lose your salvation. So you should be assured and secure in your salvation. It's very important for a new believer to understand these things because there's a lot they don't know. Right? They know that they know about Jesus and they, they believed in Jesus, but they don't know really the full extent of what that means. And so being able to give them confidence In their salvation and assure them that they can't lose their salvation is very, very important. And then we talked about the toolbox. And by the way, is this, let me ask you a question: is this the complete list? No. But I highlighted a few things that I think are really important for them to know about in the spiritual toolbox. They need to know about confession of sin, they need to know about prayer just prayer in general right and then we get to faith rest and that's more specific prayers in terms of casting your cares on the lord taking your concerns and your petitions before god laying them on him and know that he cares for you and that we're not supposed to be anxious for anything this is a specific kind of prayer that leads to what's called faith rest you trust in god and you have rest you're not you're not running around in an agitated state all the time how many people in the world run around in an agitated state All the time. There's a lot. How many people in the world run around in an agitated state most of the time? That's an even bigger group, right? That's an even bigger group of people. Well, we're not supposed to function that way. God's designed us to live in rest. And that rest comes about through the process of faith in God and then also being able to know about God that you can cast your cares upon him. Spiritual growth through the word, very important for them to understand that salvation is just the beginning Salvation is just the beginning. Now you've begun a new journey, a new life in Christ. And there's growth that's supposed to happen. We're not supposed to remain spiritual babies. We're supposed to grow in the faith. Very important for them to understand that. And this part of it, but that I gave a specific thing here, Bible reading in and of itself. Believers need to understand that they need to crack open their Bible and just read their Bible. Just read it. I mean, one of the things I encourage you, by the way, we're doing two years through the, through the Bible right now. One of the things I encourage you is don't, well, I shouldn't say this, be careful not to allow yourself to disappear into rabbit holes. And what I mean by that is, is you start reading a passage and you come across something and you think, wow, wait a minute, there's, I want to go look at this and this and I want to go look at that and this. Well, I don't have a problem with maybe you jotting yourself some notes. You know, go look at this, right? Make a note to yourself to go look at something. But while you're reading through the Bible, just read it. Just read it and allow it to do what it just does if you want to pursue those other things at, at another time, that's great. There's nothing wrong with that, yes. <clears throat> Well, you can do that, right? In our study, one of the things that we did, interestingly, Sandra, is we went back, when we finished our two years, we went back and we did read some of the Gospels, and then we went through the New Testament epistles, and then we went back now, and we're starting in Genesis and then Job and then, and then Genesis again, now. We're back in Genesis again. Because yes speaking to so many people that's where they get.: stuck, and Yeah: all of a they just quit. Well, that's a problem. And I encourage you, by the way, let me, let me give you an example of where I totally agree with what Sandra just said. If you, for example, if you are um, reading through and you hit one of the chapters in Genesis that's doing genealogies and your brain goes numb. And not only does your brain go numb, but you get stuck trying to figure out how to pronounce those Hebrew words, right? The Hebrew names and stuff. Don't let that discourage you. If you want, just skip that chapter. I'm serious. It's a genealogy. Look it over. Look it over so you have an idea of the genealogy that's being discussed there. and, And think for yourself maybe why it's important. Right. Because genealogies are important, but don't let it cause you to quit reading. Right. If that's something that you think is going to bog you down and cause you to quit reading, don't do that. Just scan it over and look at what's there and then move on to the next chapter. And uh, because I would rather see you do that than quit reading through the Bible. Uh, But I totally agree that that there's in fact what there's some Bible reading plans do. And I may do this the next time around if we're still here. If I hear the trumpet, by the way, I'm not going to worry about all this. Uh, But if uh, if if the next time what some Bible reading plans do is they actually have some Old Testament and some New Testament every day. So you read some from the old and you read some from the new. And so you make your way through the Old Testament while you're making your way through the New Testament. And sometimes that's a little bit easier. Right. It's a little bit easier to do that. So we might do that next time. What we're doing now is something of a chronological uh, reading through the Bible is what we're doing. So. Uh, anyway, these are all important. You need, this is stuff we need to encourage. You know, we're, we're hearing Sandra talk about, you know, people quitting, but we need to get people started, right? We need to get people started doing it. So, uh, very important that we have all these, uh, all these things. And there's more you can talk to him about. I just picked some things that I thought were kind of foundational and fundamental to, uh, the toolbox that brand new baby believers need to know about. This is what we hit next time. uh, Last time, I'm sorry. Uh, Helping uh, new believers find a church. One of the most important things discussed with new believers is finding a church where they can fellowship with other believers and start growing spiritually. Fellowship of the saints is huge. It's so huge. It's such an important and vital part of our spiritual growth and our spiritual uh, perseverance and sustainment is having the fellowship of the saints, and that is why it's so important to find a local church. You can get all kinds of, of teaching off of, uh, off of the Internet, or uh, if not off of the Internet, you can get all kinds of teaching by, uh, by ha- listening to recordings, right? You can, find, you can get uh, individuals, like, for example, you can have, um, if you want, you can get recordings of uh, J. Vernon McGee's Five Years Through the Bible, and you can listen to MP3s that's on DVDs and whatnot. So you can actually listen to all of those. Um, they're all, Like I said, it's all also available on the Internet. All of that is incredible and precious and wonderful for our spiritual lives. But the fellowship of the saints is a huge part of our spiritual growth because when you're going through something, when you're encountering something, somebody can come alongside. You can be there and ask others about what you're going through. So it's very important to understand the process of of, of not only attending a church in terms of the teachings, very important part of it, but the fellowship that comes with it. So this is one thing. Again, I talked about this before. One of the things I really liked about Billy Graham's ministry is he always made sure whenever he had the revivals, there, was, there were local pastors, and he would direct those brand-new uh, believers to, to local churches that he had already looked into and had confidence that they were good local churches. Very important to know what, what kind of church you're becoming associated with. So here's the things that you should look for. Uh, first of all, that uh, salvation is by faith alone and Christ alone. If they don't have a clear gospel, you don't want to send them there, right? First of all, that's going to create a problem in, in, the, in, the, in their spiritual walk if they don't understand salvation. Uh, believes that the Bible is the inspired, inerrant word of God. And that, you, you would think, well, of course. Well, trust me when I tell you, evangelical churches all over this country and all over this world are abandoning that. They are abandoning that. And when you abandon that, you've abandoned the core. You've abandoned the core of everything. If the Bible is not something we can trust as being the word of God uh, that's been delivered to us, then that changes everything. You should have some leaders that are spiritually mature. Now, this is an interesting thing because today, how many, you know, how long has the church been around? Well, almost 2,000 years, right? The church has been around for a long time. Well, back in the day when... Paul was going on his missionary journeys, right? He would get into a community. There would be people who would come to faith in Christ. He would try to help establish local churches there. And how many people did you have within those churches that were spiritually mature? Probably only a few. It was, you know, for example, how that could happen. You look at like Paul himself. Okay. He was steeped in the Hebrew scriptures. He knew the Old Testament. So when he came to faith in Christ, all of a sudden, his mind just blew up with all these things that he connected the dots from all the Old Testament scriptures. So all of that helped him to mature in his faith relatively quickly. But yet he himself, what happened? He went and spent he went and spent some time, didn't he? He didn't immediately go up to Jerusalem. He spent some time pulling all the pieces together. So what a challenge it was for them in the early church to try to establish a church and find some mature people to be the leaders of the church. But that's where I believe the apostles had a giftedness, right? The apostles had a giftedness where they were able to recognize the individuals that were going to be able to be the leaders of the churches. I believe that was part of the apostle, apostle spiritual giftedness. Today, obviously, you can look for those who have been around in the faith for a while and matured in the faith. You want to make sure the leaders are mature. Has a congregation that displays genuine love for others. Right. Not for one another within the congregation and for others. Somebody walks in that door, they should be able to they should be able to automatically know. Right. Sense the love of Christ in this congregation. And that's something that does happen in this local church. And that's one of the things that I love about this congregation. You should have a genuine love for others. And that's a love that comes from God. Right. That's the agape love that comes from God. Is committed to helping believers grow spiritually and serve others. Now, this is very important. Both of those. Put both of those on there on purpose. Yes, one of the primary purposes of a local church is the edification of the saints. Right? There's nothing wrong with us having evangelistic outreach. There's nothing wrong with us having other activities that go on at our local church. There are certainly things that make sense. But the primary function of a local church is the edification of the saints. But it's the edification of the saints for the work of service. In other words, I'm not just supposed to be helping you grow in the faith just so you can go to uh, the Bible competition down the street and win win first place. That's not the point. Right. And, And the idea is not that you immediately feel like you have all the answers when somebody asks a question. The point is that you've been you've been matured in the faith so that you can serve. That's the ultimate goal. We want to be edified so that we can serve. And in the process of serving, the Scripture makes it clear, we serve others. The spiritual gift that you were given was given so that you can serve others with it. It wasn't so you can brag about your spiritual gift. It was so that you can serve others with it. Your, your maturity in the faith is so that you're better able to serve others in whatever ministries God calls you to. You know, and, I, and I often think of, I don't have it here, I often, my mind often goes to... 1 Corinthians 12, verses 4 through 6. And this really describes how God is at work in all of these things. And again, what we're talking about here is is serving others. Now, there are a variety of gifts but the same spirit. We receive our spiritual gifts from the Holy Spirit. At the moment of salvation, the Holy Spirit gives us whatever spiritual giftedness we have. Verse 5 says, Then there are varieties of ministries in the same Lord. That's Jesus Christ. He's the head of the church. So don't you reckon that Jesus Christ is the head of the church? He's in charge of ministries. He's in charge of what doors for ministry open for you and what doors for ministry close. In other words, directing your spiritual life into whatever ministries you're supposed to partake of. Jesus Christ does that as the head of the church. And then verse six, there are varieties of effects. In other words, what comes out of those ministries, what effects there are. But the same God, and that's God the Father, who works all things in all persons. So The Holy Spirit, Jesus Christ, and God the Father are all involved in the ministries that we're we're working in. But notice the varieties of effects. How does that come about? It comes through service. It comes through serving others. There are effects. If you look at, for example, we had the ministry report from Dan Hill uh, on Wednesday night. Well, Dan Hill has been going to Africa for some time now, and he's been part of ministries training pastors. Don't you think that there's been some effects of that? I mean, he's been serving in that role. There's been some effects of that. There are now pastors who were, these, these were, a lot of these were guys who were, they were born-again believers. They, were, they loved the Lord. They wanted to serve the Lord and do what they could. They had no idea whatsoever how to prepare lessons to present to their congregations. And one of the things that they did when they were at these conferences is they helped them understand. Now, a lot of these pastors that never really did more than really, I would call them light and, light and fluffy topical studies. That's all they ever really did. Many of these pastors are now teaching line by line by line through books of the Bible. They never understood how to do that before. They never understood the, deep, the deeper things of the scriptures. So that's something that came about, but it's come about through individuals that are willing to serve, go out into the field. We're going to we'll learn about Jeff Phipps and his ministry in Brazil, same kind of thing. He went to the mission field. He was willing to serve, right? So that's how it comes about. The edification that we receive, yes, we're supposed to grow up in our faith and draw closer to God. But the ultimate goal is that through that maturity, we will serve others. And that's a a characteristic you want to see in a local church. Correctly teaches church-age doctrines such as water baptism, communion, grace orientation, etc. By the way, part of that's implicit. I didn't really put it in there, but they they teach the difference between Israel and the church. Israel in the church. What's interesting is, uh, Dan, uh, Dan was talking to me when we were having a conversation and I don't remember, I don't remember now if he actually brought it up when he was presenting, but, uh, he, he was talking to us about how, you know, he'll, he'll talk to different pastors and he'll ask them, well, are you dispensational? And they'll say no. Cause they, as soon as they hear that word, they're like, no, I don't want to, ha- I don't, I don't have anything to do with that. Are you dispensational? And then he'll ask them, well, do you believe Israel has a future? And they'll say, yes. And he said, then you're dispensational. (laughs) You may not call yourself that, but you're dispensational if you believe Israel has a future. So the idea is you need to understand the difference between Israel and the church. And you also need to be able to teach the proper church age doctrines. What are you emphasizing? What what is water baptism? What does it mean? Uh, What about communion? What's the purpose of communion? What about grace orientation? You think that's important? That's pretty important, right, for us to be grace oriented in our Understanding. By the way, and I'll ask you a quick question, is grace in the Old Testament? Yes, it is. <laughs> yes, it is. I can find passages that talk about grace all over the place in the Old Testament. There's an emphasis on grace now because we're not under law, but under grace. Right. That's why there's a greater emphasis in the church, because we're not under law, but under grace. It's perfectly fine to invite them to your church. But if they choose not to do so, be prepared to recommend another Bible teaching church. In other words, don't, you know, I hope anyway, that if you're coming to this church, that you think it's a good church. I hope you think that we check all those boxes, uh, but it's not the only one. So if they are not necessarily comfortable coming to the church that you attend, make sure you know about other churches. And I've actually had people who've contacted me to say, Hey, so I know so-and-so who lives somewhere. Do you know of any churches there that are good churches? And I do everything I can to try to find out for them if there are churches that they can attend in those areas, you know, from what I can know. I haven't been to those churches in many cases, but in some cases I know the pastor. So if I know the pastor, I know what kind of a church that's going to be from just knowing the pastor himself. But be prepared to recommend another teacher. If they don't don't come to your church, that's okay. Encourage them to focus on building a spiritual foundation first and then getting involved in activities. This is so important because too many churches are really anxious to get people involved in activities, right? It's all about programs and activities. And there's nothing wrong with programs and activities, but that needs to be what comes once you have established yourself spiritually and you are ready for those things, right? So there's certain activities. I mean, there, you know, there are activities that make sense for baby believers. Don't get me wrong. There are certain things that baby believers can participate in, but there's other activities. I mean, like, for example, <clears throat> I would not send a baby believer to the mission field. That would be a mistake right? Because you never know. first of all, when you go to the mission field, you don't know what you're going to encounter. I mean, you might encounter individuals out in the mission field that believe completely different things than what we know the Bible talks about. And you got to be, you got to be grounded in your faith so that that doesn't knock you around off course, but you wouldn't want to send a baby believer to the mission field. That's just an example. So if, if you can encourage them to, to really focus on building that spiritual foundation first, and then, as they grow in the faith and they feel like the, the, they're being led to go into different activities, that's fine. But uh, too many churches emphasize activities over foundational things, and of course, continually encourage their spiritual growth. you know this is talking about the foundation, but even after they get to the point where they have a solid foundation, continue to encourage them to grow. Spiritual growth is not a it's not a, a thing you, no i mean it, all the people in this room who have reached perfect spiritual maturity, raise your hands. Come on. <laughs> raise your hands. Yeah, I don't see anybody doing it. None of us will, right? Because that's the point. You, you laugh, but the reality of it is uh, there are people who can get confused with that. They can get to the point where they believe they've reached a plateau of maturity in their faith, and they, and they start to get complacent spiritually, and that's a dangerous place because spiritual complacency eventually leads to backsliding. Right, Because if you become spiritually complacent, you don't think you need to grow anymore. I don't know about you guys, but I'll tell you what. When I open up the Bible and I start reading the Scriptures, I see things I've never seen before. And I've looked at those verses I don't even know how many times. And I still see things I've never seen before. And that's one of the things about the Word of God is it's got everything for everyone. Right, Brand new baby believers can open their Bible and they can learn from it. And the most mature believer you've ever known, uh, that, that individual Uh, can also learn from the scriptures. I mean, the growth never stops. And I like that actually. I love the fact that we just continue to grow and we're eventually, we're eventually going to keep on growing when we're with the Lord, right? When we get to heaven, I mean, the growth just continues on ad infinitum to infinity, uh, eternity future. We're going to continue growing in the faith. All right. So that's a very important idea. The church, right? We talked about that, uh, finding a church (coughs) now. We need to make sure new believers understand the meaning and purpose of water baptism. That's one of the things I talked about in that list. This is a this thing. This is, the reason it's important is because people get confused about what it's all about. There are even churches that teach that it's necessary part of your salvation. And that is something you want to make sure they understand that it's not faith alone in Christ alone. When I say faith alone, I mean, you don't add there's nothing else. You don't add anything else to that faith alone in Christ alone. When believers are baptized, it testifies to the inward reality of their salvation. That's one of the first things that they're doing. When they go and they get baptized, they're testifying publicly. That's one of the reasons why, you know, it's interesting, a lot of churches, and I'm not knocking this, don't get me wrong, uh, there are a lot of churches that right back here, instead of a wall back here, that you would look back behind all of this and there would be a baptismal back there, right? There would be a, a setup back there for doing baptisms in the church itself. One of the things that I prefer is what we do. I mean, we've done baptisms in Lake Bastrop and the last time we did baptisms in the Colorado river. And that's, I like it because it's a public setting. You're out there in the public for people to see. And I've told you this before that one of the first ones we did, in fact, the first one we did out at Lake Bastrop, we went out there and we, we were going to sing some hymns before we actually went out and did the baptism. We all had our, our sheets of paper and we're singing the hymns. And (laughs) <laughs> Excuse me. We're sitting there. We start singing the first hymn, and all of a sudden, it was almost like something from a movie. I'm not kidding you. All of a sudden, people are coming out of the woods, right? Because we're down on the bank of the of Lake Bastrop, and there's and we're surrounded by by wooded areas. And all of a sudden, people are coming out of the woods. And it turns out that staying at one of the facilities out there was a church group, and they heard us singing the hymns, and they came down, and we all handed them sheets and they all participated with us. And this whole church group was there witnessing the baptism that we were part of. There were also a whole group of people swimming in a nearby area that all were sitting there watching. Believe me, I was noting they were sitting there watching everything we were doing in the baptism. So I like the fact that we do it publicly out there in the public where people can see. But what we're doing in that public testimony is we're testifying first and foremost to the inward reality of their salvation. This does not add to their salvation. It just testifies to it. The idea also is to identify as a disciple of Christ. This is very important. This is something that I learned as we did our studies in First and Second Peter. The idea is that one of the things we do in baptism is we're, not, we're saying, we're basically declaring, I intend to be a disciple of Christ. And again, when you hear the word disciple, what that means is not somebody, not a believer, because anybody can be a believer if they place their faith in Jesus Christ. But being a disciple is actually being a student of and a follower of Jesus Christ. And so the word both of those are implicit in the idea of a disciple. You're a student of Christ and you're a follower of Christ. And so in baptism, that's one of the things I talk to the people that are going to do a baptism about. When, when you go do a baptism, you're declaring, you're declaring not only to the public, but also there's normally there's a bunch of people from your own church that are there. You're declaring to the other people in your congregation, I intend to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Who provides an illustration of the gospel—the death, burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ—to unbelievers who attend? Because we do the, we do the immersion, right? So that symbolizes the death and the burial. And uh, I, we were, ta- it was interesting. I was, we were talking. Terry and I were talking to Dan, and one of the things that we tried to do—I know Bobby helped me at the last one—and what we tried to do is we tried to hold them underwater for roughly three seconds. And the idea of doing that three seconds is twofold. First of all, the three seconds is to sort of mirror the three days, right? You have three days. But also it's long enough that you're underwater where you're aware that you're under. If you went right down and came right back up, you wouldn't hardly even recognize that you were down there, right? But you get down there and you're long long enough where you recognize, hey, I'm underwater. And the reality of what's happening sets in. And then beyond that, it's not too long where you start to wonder if you're going to need air, right? You don't panic and start. Thinking you're going to need air, but it's just about the right amount of time to paint that picture of all of that. So if this is an illustration of the gospel. It shows the death, the burial and the resurrection of Christ. And, of course, I talk about that, of course, and, and emphasize, definitely emphasize that baptism is not a requirement of salvation. Uh, I know um, Pastor Bob at Austin Bible Church, uh, his children, he didn't force them to get baptized when they were infants. Right. None of that kind of thing. Uh, Because he believes the same thing I do about baptism, what the real purpose is. And he had family members that were all concerned about his children. They were adult children. They'd never been baptized. They're like, oh, what if they die? Well, they'll be in heaven, right? They'll be in heaven at that point. So it's not a requirement of salvation. So don't get confused about that. And, and, And new believers need to understand that because they might hear otherwise. They need to understand the truth of what the Scripture says about water baptism. And it's very important. All right, some further steps. Collectively, as a church, we should want to be an effective witness to our community. Now, here's this is why I say this, because evangelism, in my in my view, is something that we do as individuals. In other words, what I am to do as your pastor uh, in Paul exhorted, do the work of an evangelist. Well, what, a, what, a, what is the gift of evangelism really all about? All gifts are given to us so that we can equip others. All gifts are given to us to serve others and equip others. Well, in, uh, The true gift of evangelism will be used by the evangelist to train others as to how to give the gospel. Right? To train others how to give the gospel. Now, if you have that gift, do you reckon you're going to have a heart for giving the gospel? Probably so, right? The gospel is going to be really important to you. So as someone who has the gift of evangelism, you're going to have a real heart for giving the gospel. But what about as someone who trains others, right? So if I, if I am to do the work of an evangelist, as Paul has said, what I'm supposed to do is train you. And that's what this whole study is about. Train you how to share the gospel with others. Now, you then go out individually into, this, into the world, into this community and into the world And you share the gospel. That is is evangelism, right? We are all called to be ambassadors for Christ. However, as a church, I believe we should have a heart for this. We should want to be an effective witness to our community as a church collectively. We must have a burden for unbelievers. We should first of all and foremost be praying for them. That's first and foremost, and you've heard that throughout this this study we should be praying for unbelievers. I pray for my friend Aaron. I've told you about him, one of the great one of the nicest guys you'd ever meet. Super nice guy, he's very interesting, smart guy, entertaining, funny, all the things you'd like. He's an unbeliever. If he were to die, he would be going, To hell, Right. That's not what I want. So I pray for Aaron. We should be praying for unbelievers in general and for unbelievers that we know specifically family members, friends, so on. We should always treat them in grace and love. If you want to show them Christ, then you want to show them the grace and the love of Christ. Now, there's a difference between showing them love and compromising your principles. We talked about that during our study. Right? The idea is you can do this without compromising, compromising principles, compromising what you know is true from the Bible. So, for example, I've mentioned it before, our neighbors uh, next door to us where we live, our neighbors uh, are, are lesbians. We have these two lesbians. They live in Houston. Uh, they own the house next door to us, and they are living that, that lifestyle. We show them grace, and we show them love. If they were to invite us over to their place for a big, a big shindig with all their gay friends, I would not go. I would have to say no. I can't go to that. Um, I would do so graciously and lovingly. I would say no, but that's what I'm getting at. You can show grace and you can show love without compromising what you believe in. I couldn't go to a party like that because I'd be participating in what they're doing. But I can be gracious and I can show them love, and, and we should. Honestly, she—the one lady uh, that we've we've dealt with—she's talked to us more than the other. She was very concerned about that at first when she found out I was a pastor. She's like, "Was that going to create a problem?" It's like, "No, we're sinners saved by grace, right? And we know that." So, uh, you know, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna, and that and my wife, actually told her one day. She said, "We can't, we we can't approve of, of your lifestyle because for us that's that's sin. So we can't approve of your lifestyle, but we." That doesn't mean we're not going to be nice to you. It doesn't mean we're not going to show you grace and love. We should be trained to talk to others about Jesus Christ. That's part of what we're trying to do here in this study. Uh, We need to be ready as believers to talk to others about Jesus Christ. Right? Our feet prepared with the gospel, shod with the preparation of the gospel. We must realize that Bible study is not an end in and of itself, but a means by which we are equipped to serve God and carry out the mission of the church. So I part of the reason I mention this is I've known people in the doctrinal circles that came to the point of concluding that this was this was it. We were serving God by going to church and studying the word of God. Well, that's one piece of the puzzle. That's how we are edified. That's how we grow in the faith. But that's not an, an end in and of itself. This is the means we are trained up in the word of God. And that is a means by which we're equipped to serve God and carry out the mission of the church. And part of the mission of the church is to bring others to faith in Jesus Christ. Remember, we are not. So it's interesting. So in Israel, you had from among all the nations, you had the calling out of a new nation. Abraham was called out and then and then subsequently Isaac and Jacob and the 12 tribes called out from among the people of the earth. Remember, remember after Babel. After Babel, the people of the earth were separated into nations. God did that. He separated them nations. He scrambled the languages, which is interesting—an interesting word for that, by the way. It didn't mean he came up with a bunch of new languages. He just scrambled the languages. If you look at languages, you can actually see kind of some connection between the languages. I mean, our language is very based on, on uh, very based on. Latin sort of things. A lot of our words come from the Latin. We have, Although English is kind of a melange, it's kind of a, a mixture of all sorts of things, which is why we have so many weird words in English, words that mean completely different things, because in one case it came from one language and another from a, another. But the point is that God separated us out into nations, and then after that he called out from among the nations a nation unto himself. And that was Israel. And that nation was made up of people who were all descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right, as a nation. Well, the church is not national in that sense at all. The church is made up of believers from every nation on earth, every tribe and nation on the earth. And so as we, if we are to grow the church, it's not through having more children necessarily, right? If you think about Israel, they were supposed to be fruitful and multiply, be fruitful and multiply, be fruitful and multiply. How do you how do you increase the numbers of people in the nation of Israel? They have more children. Right. So you have more people in the nation of Israel. That's not that's not given to us as a church. We multiply through the sharing of the gospel. That's how we grow is through the sharing of the gospel. And then the real strength of that growth comes from the discipleship that follows that up. Right. We have not only are they believers, but they become true Disciples of Christ. So, this is what the mission of the church is. This is what we're supposed to do. And so, as we grow in the faith, we need to realize God is equipping us to serve Him through the carrying out of that mission. Individually, we should develop a personal testimony. You yourself should have a personal testimony. One of the things I like to talk to others about in in, uh, in when they come and they want to be a member of the church is I like to talk to them about their testimony in terms of when they came to faith in Jesus Christ. I like to hear about that. And for some people, it's interesting. For some people, they can remember exactly how it happened. In my case, I, I give you that, for example, that I, I was 17 years old and I had been, been hearing the gospel and I'd been <clears throat> studying the word and, and so on and so forth. And then One night I was there lying there in my bed and I came to that point where I was like, you know, this is true. I really believe this. And I placed my faith and trust in Jesus Christ that night. And then I rolled over and went to sleep because I had a peace beyond all peace. Right. I just rolled over and went to sleep. Others can't remember it. Now, I couldn't tell you the day, by the way. Some people actually remember the day. They celebrate they celebrate two birthdays, one when they were physically born and another one when they were spiritually born. Now, I don't remember the day. I honestly don't. I don't remember the day. But I remember the event. There's others that don't even remember that, particularly if they got saved when they were children. They might not remember the exact moment that they trusted in Christ. They know they trust in Christ now, but they don't remember the exact moment. But I love to hear that testimony. Now, this testimony goes beyond that. This is more than just how you got saved, although that's part of your personal testimony is how you came to faith in Christ. But your personal testimony goes beyond that into how you have seen God working in your life. It's very important because that, that is something that people can try to deny the scriptures. They can try to deny uh, verbal plenary inspiration. They can try to deny whatever they want, but they can't deny what has really happened in your life. As you talk to them about what God has really done in your life, it's something they can't try to deny. <clears throat> Throughout the Psalms, David and the other writers declared what the Lord has done for them. and That's exactly what I was just talking about just now. I'm having an issue where my mouse is wanting to hide on me. Psalm 66:16, Come and hear all who fear God and I will tell you of what he has done for my soul. That's just one example. How many times when you're reading through the Psalms do you hear David talking about or what the other writers talking about what God has done? Look what God has done. They proclaim it. That's what you should be doing as well. That's part of your testimony is to tell others about what God has done. Our personal testimony is one of the most powerful tools we have to tell unbelievers how to come to know God through Christ, right? We can tell them how how we came to faith in Jesus Christ. We can talk to them about how God has been at work in our lives even ever since our salvation. But it's one of the most powerful ways because as you talk to them about how you came to that place of faith, they'll then have a picture of how God works in all of that. It's a powerful tool to tell unbelievers how to come to know God through Christ. Not just faith, not just salvation, but to how to come to know God through Christ. An effective testimony. First of all, it's clear. We've talked about this multiple times. It's clear. It talks about what Jesus did. He died for our sins and rose from the dead. Right, you want to be clear. You don't want to muddy the waters. Right? You want to make sure it's clear. Keep Keep it to the simple and the basic ideas of it. And use terms unbelievers can understand. I've talked about this also. Again, I mentioned that. Don't. Don't start talking about propitiation. They're going to look at you like you're crazy, right? Don't go into those more technical terms. And I could even get into some of the terms that have to do with, you know, predestination and all those other sorts of things. And you can I mean, people's minds will be so cluttered with those words. They're not even going to know what you're talking about anymore. Don't talk about that sort of thing. Use terms that are basic and simple that unbelievers can understand. Um, Use the the Bible. A good and effective testimony uses the Bible. But you don't try to teach the entire Bible. Right? I mean, you don't try to teach the entire Bible. What, name for me, what are, some, what are some places in the Bible that you might go to if you're going to give somebody, if you're going to witness to somebody? Uh, John, right? I heard that John 316, the Gospel of John. What a great place to take anybody you're trying to witness to, the Gospel of John. What about even going back, if you're talking to them about God, you can go back to the very first chapter of Genesis and just look at the beginning of of genesis you don't have to go on into into all the rest of it. the very beginning of genesis what an amazing thing to take them to there you know you could take them you can take them into ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 and 9 for by grace we've been saved through faith and that not of ourselves it is a gift of god right not as a result of work so that no one may boast we've, we've seen these verses we've talked about them in our scripture memory verses but take them through the bible but don't try to teach them the whole thing don't go in and start looking at some of the details of what happened with the Southern Kingdom and the Northern Kingdom and the problems. Don't get, don't get into all of that. That's something they'll grow into as they grow in the faith. That's something I, I told you all this before. Seriously, I'm, I'm serious about this too. I knew too much when I got saved. I knew too much because one of the things that I was taught. Part of the part of the reason is because I was, I got. Part of it, I got saved listening to real, real-to-real tapes. These were Bible lessons, not just the gospel. I was listening to Bible lessons. And one of the things that I – showed shows you how old I am, right, real-to-real. But uh, one of the things was, and I've told you this before, one of the things was that I knew that if I placed my trust in Jesus Christ as my Savior, Satan was going to be my enemy. And I was going to have this powerful adversary who was now working against me. And I was like, man, but – Honestly, what convinced me in terms of being saved was greater is he that is in you than he is in the world, right? So I knew I was going to have this powerful adversary if I placed my faith in Christ, but I knew I was going to have an advocate, right? Somebody on my side that was even greater. And so that was part of the process. But you don't want to flood them with information. You want to give them what they need to know about their salvation. And... uh, a good testimony employs a, str- a strong opening statement. What I mean by that is you want to start with something that gets their attention, right? If you're going to give them, them your testimony, you want to start with something that, that's going to grab them. And not, I'm not talking about salesmanship here. I'm talking about just make, make a statement about Christ, how Christ has worked in your life, how you came to faith or whatever it is. that's something that will be intriguing to them, that will get their attention. Uh, most likely, if they're already talking to you about it, they're already somewhat interested. Right. They wouldn't be talking to you about it otherwise. So you want to try to do that. <clears throat> uh, includes personal accounts of God's working. That's what I was talking about before. How has God worked in your life? Right. You, I mean, when you talk to somebody about that and they hear about what God's been doing in your life, again, that's it's irrefutable. Uh, it finishes with a clear gospel message. Right. You want to make sure that the, the gospel is absolutely clear in that what what is required of them or salvation and is relatively short so as not to be tedious. Now, I have to tell you that I'm mostly talking to myself on this one (laughs) because what could I do? I could get wrapped up in all sorts of things, right? I could make the thing carry on for a long period of time. And if you haven't figured it out yet, I'm given to gab, right? So I might be one that would uh, would go on too long. You don't want to do that. You don't want it to be tedious. You don't want them to get sick of listening to what you're talking about. Uh, and his course is delivered in the spirit of love. Always, always in the spirit of love, you need to be talking to them. All right. Uh, structuring your personal, personal testimony, we'll come back to that. We'll come back to structuring your personal testimony next time. These are, and by the way, remember, these are just ideas. Uh, what we're doing in this whole study is talking to, you about, talking to you about witnessing, talking to you about some things you might do. These are ideas. And if you find that your personal witness is a little bit different, then that's fine. I'm not telling you that there's only one way to witness. Far be it from me to tell you there's only one way to witness. This is, this is absolutely uh, just given to you as suggestions as to how you might go about preparing yourself to be a witness. I, I always go back. I like to talk about um, Pastor Bob when he was a teenager. He got saved when he was three years old. I can, I can only imagine, right? He's a three-and-a-half-year-old child. As he came to faith in Christ. Um, But when he was a teenager, he was at a gathering. I don't remember if it was a conference or where he was, but he was a gathering and there was a woman there and he witnessed to her. Uh, And uh, after he got done witnessing to her, he went back to his went back to his house and he was basically sitting in his sitting in his bedroom, just just beating himself to pieces. Because like I quoted the wrong verse and I should have said this and I wish I had done that. And all the things that he did wrong in giving this testimony and this witnessing to this woman and then a few years later, he comes back and this woman's standing there and she walks up and puts her hand on his shoulder and says, I'd like you to meet the, the young man who led me to faith in Jesus Christ. Right. He did everything wrong. But guess what? God, the Holy Spirit, did it perfectly. <laughs> God, the Holy Spirit, did it all perfectly. So even though he messed it up, uh, he didn't he didn't mess up the, the actual witness. God took care of it from there. All right. We just recently were reading through Job, if you're doing the Bible reading, and we read this. Verse and this this uh, this verse we'll all read it together here. Y'all ready? I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Now this is after, as you probably are aware, this is after God has basically um, spoken to Job. And one of my favorite things, I almost chose this as one of our memory verses, but one of my favorite verses, and it actually comes twice in that whole thing where God is talking to Job. He basically says, I'm paraphrasing here, but he basically says, gird up your loins like a man and you teach me. That's what God said. Why don't you instruct me? <laughs> right? I will ask and you instruct me. That's what God said to Job. And I'm just trying to picture myself as Job. And I'm thinking, man, I would be about this big at that moment, right? I mean, here God is saying, look, you're so smart. Why don't you tell me? You know, and then he goes on through, where were you when I laid the foundations? Where were you? You know, and he basically lays it all down and be like, who do you think you are, Job? Right. Who do you think you are? And uh, and at that point, Job, uh, the little light went on. Right. (laughs) And Job realized that he was uh, he had gotten carried away. And uh, this is after that. Right. And so now he's basically proclaiming, you know, he's come to come to his senses and he's he's Speaking about God, and he says, I know that you can do all things. Now, what is that speaking of? It speaks of his omnipotence, right? God's omnipotence. He's capable of doing all things. He has the power to accomplish all things. Now, interestingly, it says to do all things. And what we want to understand as believers is he can do all things that are possible. Let me give you an example of something that's not possible. God cannot lie. That's something God can't do. God can't deny himself. Right. So there are certain things that are that he can't do, but those things are not possible. If God did those things, he wouldn't be God anymore. Right. So there are certain things that are not possible. But anything that's within the realm of possibility, God can do it right. He can accomplish it. And it speaks to his it speaks to his omnipotence. And then it says, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. So that not only speaks to his omnipotence, his power that he has, but it also speaks to his sovereignty. He has authority over all things. No purpose of God can be thwarted, right? So if we look at it, what is is God trying to accomplish? If he's trying to accomplish it, it will be accomplished. Now, it may happen in ways that we look at and go, wow, I can't believe it happened that way. But remember, what's what's most amazing about God's sovereignty is that God is able to accomplish all these things in an environment where he's got creatures that are volitional creatures. Think about that for a second. All of us have been granted volition, and we can make choices, and many times those choices are contrary to the will of God. Amen? Right? We all do that. So here in this environment with these creatures, and by the way, you also have what? A third of the angels that rebelled. So you've got volitional creatures there that are also part of the process. But nonetheless, he can still accomplish everything that he has purposed. It will come about. And again, many times we look at it, and we see things, and we look at it, and we're like, you know, I, don't, I wouldn't have done it that way, but it, God did it that way because that's how it had to happen given all the circumstances and all the people that were involved and so on and so forth. But he brings it about, doesn't he? No purpose of his can be thwarted. Now, one of the things that he's doing in making this statement is he's recognizing I'm just this little nothing, right? You, God, you can do all things. You, God, whatever it is that you purpose, it will come about. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. So what he's doing is he's saying he's actually showing the proper humility, which he hadn't been. Right. Because he was screaming about if I if I want to state my case, nobody's going to listen. Right. If you go through the whole book of Job, he's ranting on about, you know, if, you know, where can I get where can I get counsel? God's not even going to answer my questions. Right. He's going on and on about all these things. And here God has humbled him and he is he's recognizing Who God is. Now, there's a lot more to God than just his sovereignty and omnipotence. But when you put those two aspects of his essence first and foremost, like he's doing here, you put those two first and foremost, you recognize, you know what? He's going to do what he's going to do. He's going to do what he's going to do, and I can't stop him from doing whatever he's going to do, and I'm putting myself in the right place. Right? Understanding, for example, God's omniscience. Is different than understanding God's sovereignty and omnipotence. By the way, we we just it, we just had Groundhog Day, and my wife and I like to watch the movie Groundhog Day every Groundhog Day. And one of the things that what happened in that is they got they got the well, so we just do it over and over again. Yeah. So, uh, but uh, so one of the things that happened in there is that they they got the word wrong. He, he was ta- Bill Murray's character was talking about God's omniscience. Maybe he, does, maybe he doesn't know everything. Maybe he's just been around for a long time. But instead of omniscience, he said omnipotence in the movie. He misspoke. He said omnipotence rather than omniscience. We understand God's omniscience, his omnipresence. We understand all of those things, right? But when Job highlighted God's omnipotence and his sovereignty, basically he was saying, I know my place, God. I know my place. I know who I am and I know who you are. And a lot of those things that he'd been ranting about was basically him Uh, elevating his own personal self-importance, right, and his own personal um, strength and power, if you will, right? And he was wailing on all those things, and now that God has gotten his attention, he's going, look, I know, I know. I know that you could do all things. I know that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. I know, God. I know who I am, and I know who you are. That is something that all of us need. If you want to have a successful Christian walk, we all need to be in that place where Job is in that moment because we need to recognize who God is. The Bible talks about a fear of God, Right, fear of God. There is a proper understanding of God, what he what he can do. Right. What he can do, the power that he has, the sovereignty that he has and so on. And each of us should have the proper fear. And that, by the way, brings into view awe, reverence, respect. All of those things are part of that. But if you really understand God, you realize what he can do. I mean, look at the book of Job, what he allowed to happen in his permissive will in the first few chapters. Job was the most righteous man on earth. And what happened to Job? He went through incredible undeserved suffering. Did he not? And Job, of course, in the beginning handled it very well. But I really think if you read the book of Job, now I could be wrong about this. I could be wrong about this. But when I read the book of Job, I really believe part of the reason Job went off the rails is because of, of what his friends said to him. I think if he'd been left to his own, I think he would have stayed the course. But his friends came up and started blaming him, right? They said, all right, what did you do wrong, Job? What did you do? And they start laying all that stuff on him, and I think he just lost it as a result of all that they were doing. Interestingly, you'll notice at the end, at the very end, uh, and I might be pronouncing it wrong, but Elihu, the young man who spoke to him at the end, he was not criticized by God. Zophar and Bildad, right? They were all, they were all criticized for what they had been saying, but Elihu was not criticized. And if you look at what he said, he was, more, he was more on track than the other ones were in terms of what he said to Job. But nonetheless, all of that brought Job to the point where he, he, he realized he wasn't, he wasn't being humble before God. And humility is one of the most important ingredients in the Christian walk. If you want to have a successful Christian walk, if you want to, you want to grow in the faith, if you want to serve, if you want to uh, produce uh, for, for the Lord, if you want to have eternal rewards, all of that, really, honestly, one of the primary ingredients of all of that is humility. If we are not humble before God, then what's going to happen? Uh, we're going to elevate our own self-importance, and we're going to end up not, uh, not yielding all the fruit that we should. Right. That's what's going to happen. So notice the humility in that statement. But uh, anytime you read these verses, you know, a lot of times when you read these sorts of things, you know, in your mind, note to yourself, OK, what what parts of God God's essence are being highlighted here? And if you can remember those things, it helps you understand what's being communicated in the verse. All right. Well, let's go ahead and close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for all that your word does for us, the way it teaches us. We thank you for what we've been learning on witnessing. Help us to be more effective witnesses, not that we're trying to fine-tune ourselves to be the perfect evangelist, but that we have a, a founding, we have uh, our testimony ready, we are prepared for the moment when we have the opportunity to share the gospel. And in the process of that, let us be humble like Job was in this, in this verse and recognize that we're not the ones that are accomplishing anything. You're the one that's accomplishing it. The Holy Spirit's going to bring about the change. We understand that, that without your involvement, that, that that's not going to ever happen. Nothing's going to ever come about. So, Father, we just implore you to help us to be your fellow workers in this. Help us to be diligent, obedient fellow workers and share the gospel when we have the right opportunities and help us to know what to do in order to disciple the new believers that we encounter in our lives as well. Father, we ask all of these things in Jesus Christ's most precious and holy name. Amen.